Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What was that? Well, that was very intentionally uh, done because that is the opening lines of Anglican poet T.S. Eliot's very famous Four Quartets. And the reason I chose to open with that is because for many of us, the reading of the book of Revelation is very similar to hearing what we just heard. How do you make sense of it? How do we unpack all the imagery and the richness and even the scary images that are in the book of Revelation? Just like T.S. Eliot's very beautiful but very difficult poem for quartets. And Eliot, in his poem, does touch on the themes of time and death and mortality and the possibility of life immortal and what that looks like. So, too, with John in his revelation, or the revelation that he received. And it's important that we realize that it's a revelation, singular. What John is shown, we will unpack over the next few Sundays, because we are going to begin a teaching series on the book of Revelation. It's a single revelation, but there's a lot going on. And just like a work of poetry or a piece of music or a tapestry, there are many threads and themes and images going on, so much so that it can be very difficult to understand and to unpack. So that's what we're going to do over the next few Sundays is unpack all this tapestry of the book of Revelation. You may be thinking, well, why now? Why Revelation? Because Advent is three Sundays away, the beginning of Advent. I shared that this morning at the 8.30 service, and someone said, my goodness, it's kind of scary to think about that Advent is almost here, because it means, as maybe some of you realize coming into the parking lot with the Christmas trailer there, that Christmas isn't too far behind. And with the weather of this weekend, it certainly doesn't feel that it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. But Advent is a time, a season of waiting and a season of preparation. And of course, we rightly celebrate that first Advent of Jesus' birth among us. But as Christians, we also stand on the other side of Jesus' birth, and so we are waiting for the second Advent, the second coming. Of Jesus. So Advent is not just a time of getting ready for Christmas. It's a time of getting ready for that time when Jesus will come like a thief in the night to bring his heavenly kingdom down to earth. And so, to paraphrase a song from The Sound of Music, what do you do with a problem like Revelation? Revelation is a problem in the life of the church because Revelation is a book that is always or maybe always is a bit strong of a word, but is often and more often than not misinterpreted, misapplied, misappropriated. It makes for great fodder for movies and books, and indeed there are churches and preachers who have built their whole livelihood and reputation on preaching and teaching about the book of Revelation. Right? Remember the heydays of Hal Lindsey and the great late planet Earth? I mean, that man's whole career was based on that. And every other snake oil salesman preacher who's come along and says, 
I figured it out. I know the date that Jesus is coming again and the conditions that will arise to that or to, that will lead to that. And this is not just a new modern phenomenon. The book of Revelation has, present, has been a problem throughout the life of the church. Right? There are some who even argue that maybe it shouldn't even be included in the Bible because it's so difficult to understand and because it can be so often misinterpreted and used to all kinds of nefarious ends. So we begin by reflecting on what Revelation is most decidedly not. When I was a young man, I had in my room a poster of the end times, specifically a timeline of the end times. I thought this was really neat. It was based on the book of Revelation. It was based on the scriptures, and it could map out exactly what was going to happen and the order in which the end was going to become. That's kind of an odd fixation for a man in his 20s, I think. But it was a period in my life, and I think we all go through that kind of apocalyptic uh, mindset in our, in our lives. But Revelation is not a code for the end of the world that somehow needs to be broken open. These images and symbols are not, trying, are not meant to be codes that we have to discern what they mean. I remember Hal Lindsey offering uh, his interpretation of this when I read that book, and he was talking about the various arsenal of the various world militaries and how all these things must be and correspond to all those images that John is seeing. It's not that. So we can put that to rest right now. If you like Left Behind and the books and the movies, that's great, but they're fiction. I need to disavow you of all of that right now. This is not what we're doing when we come to Revelation. We are not trying to map out in some definitive way the end. But Revelation is about the end. But end in English has at least two meanings. The first meaning, of course, is to end something, right? To cease it, to stop it. And that's usually the singular thread that a lot of apocalyptic doomsday kind of preaching pulls on is the end in terms of the end of all things. The cessation, the, um, yeah, the, the termination of all human history. And again, it's exciting for books and movies and that sort of thing. It can be, you know, uh, really interesting to kind of figure out what's going on. But end here in our language has another meaning. Right? You've all heard the term, the means justify the ends. In that sense, end means something to which a goal is. An end is a goal, it's a direction, it's something that you are striving toward. And in that sense, Revelation is about the end. The end of human history as it moves toward its completion, toward its goal, toward the fulfillment of all meaning and purpose. And we'll unpack what that means. But John gives us a hint at the very beginning. Because did you notice, Revelation is included in the Bible partly because of who wrote it, John the Evangelist. John the Evangelist, of course, is the one who wrote the Gospel of John. Our, go our Gospel reading was from that. John the Evangelist was the younger brother of James. The other sons, of they were known together, of course, as the Sons of Thunder. They were fishermen, the sons of Zebedee, who left their father and their nets to follow Jesus. And John would have been a very young person at this point, probably not even much older than a teenager. 
But he gave everything to follow his older brother, to leave his father, and to follow this Jesus fellow who called them. And so John, because of who he was as one of the twelve, has an authority that the early church recognized and said, well, John's vision, his revelation, should be included in what we know as the Bible, because it's John. Even though we might not have any idea what he's talking about, even if we're not sure. But remember, the point is, John is told, write all these things down, what you have seen, and then share them with the churches. So it's meant to be shared. It's an open revelation. It's not a private revelation that for just John only. It's meant for the churches, and it is part of the gospel. The word gospel, of course, means good news. The book of Revelation is meant to be good news. It's not meant to be scary, awful, terrifying, although there are aspects of that. But overall, its message is a message of hope, of good news, of the love of God. So Revelation is part of that gospel, and more importantly, it's a word, a word of consolation to a persecuted and beleaguered church who was facing oppression and enemies on all sides. Because John writing here as an old man exiled unto the island of Patmos finds himself there because he's run afoul of the Roman authorities. So they send him in his 90s off to exile on an island. And it is here that John is revealed uh, what is revealed to John is this gospel, this word given to the church. Because it was written in the time of Diocletian. Diocletian was a Roman emperor who was known for persecuting Christians. Christians made good fodder for the Colosseum to be fed to lions, to be mincemeat for gladiators. And so John is writing in this context to these churches who find themselves oppressed by the Romans. But you may be thinking, well, where does this oppression come from? I mean, at this point in the life of the church, the church is a very, very, very small, insignificant sect, largely based in Jerusalem and that part of the Holy Land in the Middle East. Wouldn't really fall too much on Rome's radar, except, except something has happened during the reign of Nero and the other emperors. The Rome and power and fame of, I mean, the, Ro the power and fame and glory of Rome is so great that the Roman emperors take on for themselves a very divine title. They begin to call themselves the sons of God. And if Caesar is a son of a god, that means that Caesar himself is a god and should be treated as a god accordingly and should be worshipped and revered accordingly. Sounds familiar to the confession that Christians would make, isn't it? Christians confess belief in the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ, and they profess that Jesus is Lord. So if Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar is not Lord, and if Jesus is the Son of God, that means the emperor is not a son of the gods. Interestingly enough, it was Christians that were called atheists by, their Roman, um, by, the, by the Romans, because they did not correspond to the Roman understanding of the gods and specifically of the emperor being a god. And that's how the Christians started running afoul of the Romans because the Romans said, 
there's this group of people that go around worshiping anyone but Caesar, and more specifically, they're not just worshiping anyone but Caesar, they're worshiping this Jewish carpenter who claimed to be the son of God, who we killed, and they claim that he's risen again. We need to quash this very quickly. And as I said, the Roman emperors learned that Christians make really good fodder for lions and for, uh, for gladiators. So it's this context to which John is writing this word of hope, this word of the gospel to a beleaguered and oppressed church. And the focus of all the book of Revelation is this figure that John meets at the very beginning. Remember, John was a disciple of Jesus. John responded to Jesus' call. He followed Jesus for three years. He was at the cross when Jesus was crucified, standing there with Jesus' mother Mary. And John does not recognize Jesus now. Because this figure that comes to meet John is Jesus in the fullness of his heavenly glory. And John doesn't recognize him because it is just so awe-inspiring, this, view, this vision that, Jesus, that John is given. And it's not just a mere vision. It's vision not in the sense of fantasy or, or, or a dream, but it's a vision in terms of he gets to see Jesus with the veil unlifted, so to speak. And that's what the word apocalypse means. An apocalypse is an unveiling. And what John is going to see in this revelation that is given to him is an unveiling of Jesus Christ and his heavenly glory, an unveiling of all of human history, seen all at once, past, present, and future together. And that's a hard thing for humans to wrap their heads around because we understand past is past, present is present, future is future. And John is given this vision of Jesus Christ as Lord of everything. That's why this image he has of Jesus is so powerful. He's trying to put in mere human words something that escapes or goes beyond all human words. Someone that he knows very well. He now sees him as he is and he is just awestruck. But he's told to write it down for the sake of the church. And so he does. And what he sees is a reminder that though the pomp and glory of earthly rulers may seem to be significant, it pales in comparison to the glory of the risen Lord, the Son of God. And one of the things you may have picked it up in the reading is the language of Alpha and Omega. It's right there on the top of the, uh, the uh, Easter stained glass, right on the top. You've got the Alpha and the Omega intertwined. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. That's where we get the word alphabet, Alpha. Beta, beta is the second letter, A, alpha. And omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. Kind of looks like a horseshoe. It's actually on the back of my chasuble, so when I turn my back, you can see it. But the language of alpha and omega is the language of beginning and end. But not end, again, in terms of cessation or termination, but end in terms of goal and direction. We know that Jesus is the beginning. John in his own gospel, when he is poetically retelling Genesis 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things came into being through him. 
the Word of God that speaks all of creation, of why there is something rather than nothing, the beginning is found in the Alpha, who is the Son of God. But also the end. But the end in terms of the goal. The goal to which we are moving, the goal to which all of human history is moving, of all creation, of us and our individual lives moving toward this one whom John meets with eyes flaming of fire, whose face is so bright he can't even see his face because it's as the brightness of the sun. St. Paul tells us we are being formed into the image and likeness of this one. So the Alpha and the Omega is our beginning and our end. He is the one that is pulling and moving all things to their fruition, their climax, their culmination. And so John is writing this revelation to remind the church, then and now, that even if it finds itself hated by a world that cannot understand it, rejected by a world that hates its gospel and everything it stands for, that there is someone who is not just a king or queen, a president or a prime minister, but who is the Lord of all human history, the Lord of all time, the Lord of all creation. It is this one who is first and foremost revealed to John, and it is him who is the key to understanding the rest of the book of Revelation. But we'll get to the rest of the story in the weeks ahead. But I want to, in closing, encourage you to read and pick up and reflect on the book of Revelation. It's okay if you don't understand it. It's okay if it seems strange and weird. We will walk through this. And you can join us on Fridays for our Bible study at 11 o'clock where we're, we're taking uh, a bit of a deeper dive into the book of Revelation. But read it knowing that this one, this one that John meets at the beginning, is the one who is the key to unlocking the whole of not just the book of Revelation, but the whole meaning of everything that is. Thanks be to God.